As we come to our text in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, beginning at verse 31, we're coming in the middle of a great section where Jesus is teaching on the Temple Mount. He's teaching on the Temple Mount right after the Feast of Tabernacles. Jerusalem is still crowded with a lot of people who came with the feast. We don't know exactly how many people Jesus spoke to on the uh, Temple Mount. Uh, I envision it on my mind maybe 50 to 100 to 150. There's people all around listening to the words of this man who taught with such authority and with such power from God. And as Jesus taught, there were also some in the crowd, those who were of the religious leadership of Israel at that time, who opposed him, who wanted to silence him, who even wanted to kill Jesus. And as he speaks to the crowd, he's speaking to both groups. He's speaking to those people who believed in him, but he's also speaking to those people who opposed him. And we're going to see him speak first to those who believed in him, and starting at verse 31, where we read, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus said these words, speaking to the crowd, knowing that some had put faith in him as someone who taught the word of God. As a matter of fact, the previous verse, verse 30, you could just look at it yourself, it tells us that many believed in him. And Jesus spoke to these people recognizing that they had what I would call the beginning of belief. What do I mean by that? In other words, they believed in Jesus, but it was just the first step of belief. You know, really following Jesus Christ isn't just a first step, it's a lifelong process of discipleship. It's a lifelong process of living after Jesus and hearing his word and responding to it. Well, these people had taken a first step and it was a genuine first step, but Jesus tells them now, if you want to continue, if you want to continue in belief and discipleship, this is required of me and this is how he says it here in verse 31, you can look at it yourself. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Friends, it's very simple. If we are going to be disciples of Jesus Christ, we must abide in his word. There's no other way. Now, when we call ourselves a disciple of Jesus, or if you want to take the name a Christian, friends, I don't know, can we just kind of agree that if you take upon yourself the title of a Christian, It means you hope to, you aspire to be a disciple of Jesus. I mean, hopefully we're not saying this in some proud way. Here I am, I'm the perfect Jesus follower. Put on me the name Christian. None of us are approaching with that kind of pride or arrogance. But we just simply say, to be a Christian means I consciously want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. I don't think that's a terribly controversial statement. Jesus is telling us one of the fundamental aspects of how to be a Christian, how to be a disciple of his. And what does he say? He plays it very plainly there in verse 31. If you abide in my word. In other words, it's not enough just to make a first step in God's word. You need to abide in God's word. To be a follower of Jesus who is the word made flesh, is to abide in his word. That is to live in, to dwell in it, to make your home in his word. I think this is a perfectly appropriate time for me to bring up something that actually, as I think about it, I don't talk about it so much on Sunday morning, and maybe I need to talk about it a lot more, but I'll talk about it right now. It's simply to impress upon you the importance 
of reading your Bible. Now, I'm glad you read your Bible. I see most people have Bibles open in front of them or electronic versions. And I hope as I see you tapping your screen, you're diligently taking notes and not playing Candy Crush or something like that. (laughs) But anyway, here you are. You got your Bible open. You're looking at the Bible, but that's a wonderful thing and I'm glad you're here. And it shows something good that God has done in your heart that you're here with an open Bible and an open ear and an open heart. That's good. But can I tell you kind of a fear of a pastor like myself? I look out upon you and I wonder, how many of you, this is the only time you open your Bible all week? You you need to be reading your Bible. You need to be reading and thinking about the Word of God. And when I say the Word of God, I'm not just talking about the words of Jesus. We're not just talking about the red letters in your Bible. Because when Jesus said, my word, he intended the entire Word of God. You need to be reading your Bible. Now, some people want to make this all legalistic. They say, okay, pastor, tell me how much I need to read my Bible. How many minutes a day? How many days a week? Listen, you know what? I'm not into laying legalistic trips on people. Can I just say one thing? And this will be convicting enough without laying a legalistic trip. Just ask yourself right now, how much do you read the Bible during the week? How much do you read it and think about it? Now, for some of you, frankly, it's zero. Okay, good. Start doing some. Other one would say, well, I read the Bible for seven minutes a day, three days a week. Okay, great. Why don't you bump that up to 12 minutes a day, four days a week? Whatever you're doing right now, do more. And God will bless you for it. You will show yourself to be his disciple indeed. Because this is something I believe. And friends, I believe this with all my heart. I wouldn't do this if I didn't believe it. That there's something in the word of God that goes beyond intellectual improvement or educational advancement. There's something in spending time with the word of God and meditating upon it that God works things in our life spiritually that we can't even comprehend. There's a cleansing work from the spirit of God that happens as we give ourselves to his word. There's an empowering work, a a forgiving work, a a strengthening work, a, a work of faith, a work of grace, a work of hope. Those things are instilled in our life as we consciously give attention to his word. As we, I'll use Jesus' phrasing, as we abide in his word. If you do that, you'll see that God will bless it. One of the dark times in any Christian community is when God's, word, God's people spend less and less time in his word. But when God's people are a Bible reading and a Bible thinking people, God moves in powerful ways. So notice that, verse 31, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Now, let me just make one more very practical point from this. I I would phrase it like this. Belief is the beginning, but abiding is essential. The first steps you make in following Jesus Christ, wonderful, thank the Lord for them, they're great. But nobody just makes a first step in the Christian faith and says, good, I'm done. I bought my fire insurance. You know, from the fires of hell, get it? (laughs) I got my ticket to heaven. Woo, I'm good. No, 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 no. Following Jesus Christ, it's one thing. You abide. You make the first step and then you abide upon it. You see, the true followers of Jesus are shown because they keep his word. Now, some people ask a question, and can I say, I understand why they ask this question. They say it something like this. Well, who are you to say who's a Christian and who's not? Now, I understand why people ask that question, and in fact, I would agree with them. Who am I to say somebody's a Christian and who's not? Pretty much nothing. 
But can we agree on this? That Jesus is qualified who's to say who's a Christian or not? And if you see people who do not abide in the word of Jesus, in other words, their life and their character is so far out of who Jesus was and what Jesus taught and what the Bible says, it's fair to say they're not a true disciple. Every once in a while, either in history or in the present day, you'll find people who commit terrible atrocities and they'll do it in the name of Jesus. Well, you know what, friends? It's fair enough for her to say they're not really Christians. Why? Not because we can see into their hearts, but because we can see just based on what Jesus said, whatever it is about their life, their life, their pattern of living demonstrates that they do not abide in his word and therefore they are not his disciples indeed. But here's the flip side of it. Notice here verse 32. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. There is something liberating about the work of God in our life that brings freedom in and through the work of his word and discipleship. It's the result of abiding in the word of Jesus. We prove ourselves to be his disciples and we know the truth and God works his freedom into our life. Now, if you make somebody that offer, you can be free. How are people gonna respond to that offer? It's kind of surprisingly, not many people will say, I want to be free, tell me more about it. Do you know what the most common response to that kind of invitation is? Well, let me show you what the most common response is because it's basically the response of the Pharisees when they say here in verse 33, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin and a slave does not abide in the house forever but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Notice their response in verse 33. Jesus just offered them freedom in the Son. He just said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And you know what their response was? It was something like this. Hey, Jesus, we're good. I'm not in bondage to anybody. We're fine. And what's really funny is the Jewish people at that time, the religious leaders, they made this statement, we are not in bondage to anyone. What an amazingly ignorant or blind statement that was both historically and at the time. Friends, they were on the Temple Mount And they could see the fortress Antonio with a garrison of Roman soldiers looking down upon them, ruling over them right then at that very moment. Yet in their blindness, they say, hey, no, we're good, Jesus. We're free. We don't need any of this freedom that you offer. Isn't that the common response of humanity? Doesn't it take a supernatural work of God's spirit where somebody will really admit to their need of Jesus Christ and freedom from sin and darkness? That's responsible. No, freedom in Jesus, hey man, that might be good for you, but I'm good. I don't need it. So notice what Jesus says to them after that response in verse 34. He says, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Now I do need to point something out about the grammar of the original wording that Jesus used here. The grammar of the original wording indicates that Jesus spoke of whoever habitually commits sin. In other words, he's not talking about occasional sin. He's talking about a habitual sin. He goes, if you habitually commit sin, you are a slave of sin. You're in bondage to it. Now, I wonder if those religious leaders were aware right at that moment of the sin that they were in bondage to. Because you know what? These were religious leaders. These were fairly moral men. 
These weren't men who were cheating on their wives. These weren't men who were getting drunk every other night. These weren't men like that. Then how was it that they were in bondage to sin? I'll tell you, they were primarily in bondage to sin because they were in bondage to sin of rejecting Jesus. And this was their deep sin. They rejected Jesus and they wouldn't change from it. They were in bondage to that sin. Therefore, Jesus offered them, verse 36, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Friends, there is freedom for you, but you've got to come to the Son to receive it. I am the Son of God. And if we are going to be set free from our slavery to sin, we must be set free from a Son. You don't need another slave to do it because another slave can't do it. You need the Son of God to come in your life and set you free from it. And this happens by abiding in Jesus' word and being his disciple. Then we are free indeed. Again, let me draw forth a second principle from this. It's very plain. You've got it already, really. I'll just repeat it. It, It's this simple principle. Sin makes slaves, but the son sets free. You know what? Being ignorant of your slavery to sin isn't going to set you free denying your slavery to sin isn't going to set you free. What you have to do to be set free from your slavery to sin is simply look to the Son of God, put all your trust and hope in him, and allow him to free you in your life. Now, there are people, frankly, they don't want to be set free from their sin. They're comfortable in it. They've made a place for it in their life. I would hope that anybody in this room who names the name of Jesus Christ, if you are in slavery to some kind of sin, then at the very least you could say very plainly, I'm in bondage to this, but I hate it. I want to be set free. Can I tell you that Jesus has just told you the most essential key? I'm not trying to say that this is magic dust that you sprinkle over your problems and everything goes away. I'm telling you a path of discipleship, but it begins here, you look to the sun and not to yourself. If you look to yourself to set yourself free, you'll be in constant disappointment. But if you keep your eyes on Jesus and look to him and his word and his work in your life, that is the path to freedom from sin. There's not a single person in this room who needs to live their life in bondage to sin, in the bondage to addiction, in the bondage to to, uh, immorality, in the bondage to lying, in the bondage to anything. Because even good things become sinful bondage in our life when they're placed before the Lord. There is wonderful power in the name of Jesus to break chains and to set slaves free. And this is what Jesus explained to them. Now, I think it's time for a good old-fashioned slave rebellion. Don't you think so? You know, that's the one thing in societies where slavery exists. It was true in the South and the United States during slavery days. Slave owners lived in constant fear of slave rebellions. Let me tell you something. The devil lives in constant fear of a slave rebellion. That people who are slaves under him will recognize that there's freedom in the name of Jesus and find that freedom and break the chains that enslave them. I think it's time for us to turn that rebellious impulse into the right direction. Say, all right, Satan, here comes a slave rebellion against your kingdom and against darkness. We're gonna find our freedom, our liberty in Jesus. Continuing on, verse 37, Jesus says, 
I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Now notice, Jesus doesn't say who their father is. He'll get to that later. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Jesus is getting back to this attitude that they had that basically said, we're good, Jesus, we don't need you. And if you were to ask them, well, why do you think you're good? They would say, because we're Abraham's descendants. We're good. And Jesus here is calling them on that. And he's saying, you may be Abraham's descendants genetically, but you're not Abraham's descendants spiritually. Friends, the Bible talks about it in two senses. And biblically speaking, each sense is important. God has an important role for the genetic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in his world today, past, present, and his future prophetic plan. And that's why it's important for us to love and care for the Jewish people. And the state that represents the Jewish people, Israel. This is important for us to do. But it's important for us to also realize that God speaks also not only of a genetic connection to Abraham, but also a spiritual connection to Abraham. And these religious leaders that Jesus spoke to, they had a genetic connection to Abraham, but they did not have a spiritual connection to Abraham. They did not have a spiritual connection because they were not people of faith. And it's by living in faith and receiving the word of God and receiving God's messengers that we demonstrate ourselves to be spiritual children of Abraham. Even though we may not have a drop of Jewish blood within us, we can say spiritually, I am connected to Abraham. And this is a very important thing. Jesus is telling them, you're not good. They, they, they were, no, Jesus, we're good. We're descendants of Abraham. I, I wonder if there's anybody here under the same deception this morning. You think, hey man, I was raised in a Christian home. I'm good. My parents are believers, I'm good. My grandparents are, my grandfather was a preacher, I'm good. Listen, friends, that's not enough. You gotta have your own relationship with Jesus Christ. You, you gotta be not only a genetic descendant, no, but a spiritual descendant as well. And Jesus is gonna continue to call them on it, picking up now in the middle of verse 41. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication, we have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come on myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. Now, what they said in the middle of verse 41 blows my mind. They are getting so flustered by Jesus and his calling out, his pointing at the sin and the darkness in their life that they blurt out this statement, we were not born of fornication. Do you know what they're implying by that? Jesus, you were. Don't think for a minute, Jesus, this is what the religious leaders would think and say. The religious leaders would think and say, don't think for a minute, Jesus, that we believe that story about the virgin birth. We believe that you were born of fornication, probably from a Roman soldier. Yeah, Jesus, that's the story we heard. Now, I so admire Jesus for just not going crazy and calling down fire from heaven upon those guys right there at that point. It's almost as if Jesus said this, okay, you want to insult me? Fine, you're insulting my mama, fire from heaven. (laughs) But no, Jesus, Jesus, 
so filled with calm, so filled with the dignity of the truth and righteousness, even though they said, we were not born of fornication, Jesus says, listen, there's a problem with your parentage. Here it goes, verse 42. If God were your father, you'd love me. How can you claim God to be your father? How can you be claimed to connect with him? And I am the perfect representation of the father and you reject me. It just doesn't fit. If you accept Jesus, you accept the Father. If you reject Jesus, you reject the Father. There's no room left for the person who says, I love God, but I reject Jesus. Because then you don't know what God is about. Jesus perfectly represents God to us because he is God. Now going on to verse 44. You, can I just pause here? Buckle your seatbelt. I want you to picture this scene Jesus calmly, he's not shouting, he's calmly speaking to the religious leaders, but he's speaking with a strength in his voice, and he says, verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he's a liar and the father of it, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Sometimes I can't believe what Jesus says. Verse 44, there's this whole debate. Oh, my father's Abraham, our father's this. Jesus, no, let me tell you guys the truth here. Spiritually speaking, your father is not Abraham. Your father is the devil. That's a pretty heavy statement, don't you think? One thing this shows us right here is that Jesus believed in the devil. I'm not saying he believed in a guy who wore red tights and carried a pitchfork. He believed in a real devil. The Bible describes the devil as being a spiritual being of great power and authority, nowhere near equal to God. Nobody should think that the devil is God's opposite. No, no, that's a completely wrong way to think. But he is a being of high power, of great intelligence and incredible persistence who is an enemy to God and his people. And his destiny is utter destruction in the pit of hell, but he loves to drag as many people down there with him as he can. And he hates humanity because humanity is made in the image of God. It's almost as if the devil says, don't take it personally why I hate you. I hate you because you're made in the image of God and it's God whom I really hate. But he's declared war on humanity and especially God's people. And he has thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of lesser spiritual beings who obey him and whom he dispatches upon his dirty errands. The Bible says that this being exists. Now, look, I'm going to say this, and I'm not trying to sound too, well, I don't know. I'll just say it. You may be so sophisticated that you don't believe in the devil. I, I, I don't blame you. This is the spirit of the age. As I speak about this, you may just say, well, tut, tut. Preacher there believes in the devil, and I'm sure he's going to, you know, try to scare everybody right now, on and on. I'm just saying this. You may be so sophisticated that you don't believe in the devil, But I would just say, Jesus clearly did. And if you're smarter than Jesus, fine. We'll just have this discussion. You're smarter than Jesus. Man, that would be a great discussion. 
you being smarter than Jesus, surely you can do a lot more good in the world than Jesus did. So this would be a great discussion that you and I can have. But no, it's very plain. Jesus believed in the devil. And he said that some people, wittingly or unwittingly, they align themselves with the devil. You could probably say that the devil is their father because again, knowingly or unknowingly, they're doing the devil's thing. They are not doing God's thing. And it was evident for these men in that their desires match the devil's desires. Their desire was to kill Jesus and to deceive about Jesus. And that's what the devil wanted. Your agenda is the same is the devil's agenda. In that sense, it could be said that the devil is your father. And friends, I know it's a very heavy thing to say of anybody, the devil is your father. Your agenda is the same as the devil's agenda. You seem to have some kind of connection with that. I know it's a heavy thing, but you know what? There's some good news behind that. Here's the good news. You can change your family. What do I mean by that? Listen, the bad news is that there are some people, many people in this world, their agenda is frankly aligned with the devil's agenda. They want to take away life. They don't want to give it. They want to deceive. They don't want the truth. They want to destroy. They don't want to build. On and on and on. But here's the thing. God never says that to a person without also offering, you can change your family right here and now. We're not trying to say, well, that's it. You're born in the devil's family. Too bad to be you. No, God says, doesn't matter what family you're in, how dark, how evil, there is a way out in Jesus Christ and you can be adopted into a new family. The gates of Jesus and his freeing power are wide open. Doesn't even matter if somebody made some phony baloney contract with the devil. Are you kidding me? Like Jesus says, oh, what can I do? They made a contract with the devil. Are you, what? Jesus comes, he tears up that contract because I'm more powerful than any of that. Here's the good news. You can change your family. But again, Jesus says, verse 47, you do not hear because you are not of God. Now, verse 48, then the Jews answered and said to him, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Again, they're just firing things out at Jesus. Well, well, Jesus, you're Samaritan. You're demon-possessed. Jesus goes, I'm not demon-possessed. I honor my father. It's evident because one thing that the devil does not do is honor God. Can we agree on that? So the fact that Jesus was honoring his father in heaven demonstrated that he was not of the devil. That's why he says in verse 49, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father. And then he continues on, verse 51, most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall not taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead and the prophets are dead? Whom do you make yourself out to be? Now, I think when they asked that last question, a little smile came across the face of Jesus. He's saying, I thought you would never ask. And he'll tell them in just a moment. But notice the phrasing here. Jesus says, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. That completely freaked them out. That Jesus would say that he has something that is greater than the power of death. That in him, death has no sting. The grave has no victory. 
That even though we may give a passing glance to death in the difficulties of this life, it's not our state of mind nor thinking. And this completely freaked them out. That's why they said, you have a demon. Abraham is dead. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Whom do you make yourself out to be? Now, before Jesus answers their question, he's going to make a brief statement about honoring God again. Look at it here, verse 54. Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It's my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, then I'll be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Now, starting at verse 56, Jesus is going to answer their question, whom do you make yourself out to be? Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Right there, Jesus told them exactly who he thought he was. And you know what the answer is? God. G-O-D. Yahweh. The covenant God of Israel. Friends, Jesus is deliberately taking terminology that was well known to the Jews of that day directly from the voice of God from the burning bush where Yahweh revealed himself to Moses and said, I am that I am. I am. Now, they understood him so perfectly. Let's finish it. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple going through the midst of them and so passed by. What I want to emphasize is that when Jesus said those words, before Abraham was, I am, he was so pointedly declaring himself to be God that they said, he's guilty of blasphemy, let's stone him. Friends, you know, as you might expect, Uh, Just with the calling God has put in my life to understand and to preach his word, I do a lot of reading. And I do a lot of reading from people of different theological backgrounds. And there are people who I don't agree with at all theologically, but this is one of the things they say. They say, Jesus himself never claimed to be God. I don't know what Bible those folks are reading. I honestly don't. They want to act like, well, Paul later put this on Jesus. Uh, Peter later put this on Jesus. But Jesus himself never claimed to be God. Now, what I think is so funny about this is here's some supposed scholar. I don't mean to sound dismissive, but I'll say it. Here's some purported scholar speaking 2,000 years after the fact, saying, oh, no, no, Jesus never claimed to be God. When the people who heard him right at the moment knew exactly what he was saying. How do we know they knew exactly what he said? Because they picked up stones to stone him. They knew he claimed to be God. Friends, I'm going to say it again. You've heard me say it all through this series in the Gospel of John, and I'm not going to stop saying it. We need to come back to an understanding, have it so fresh in our mind, Jesus is God. And I don't blame you for getting a little tired of it. I don't blame anybody in this room for kind of thinking, come on, Pastor David. Okay, I get it. He's God. Can we move on? No, not right now. (laughs) Because here's the point, a very practical point. Friends, here it is. Only Jesus, God the Son, is enough. 
I'll agree that throughout the Gospel of John, the emphasis on Jesus being God, it's almost excessive. You almost want to say to John, okay, John, we get it already. Back off a little bit. But listen, it's so important for us, and it's not too much of an emphasis, because our birthright in Adam is too wicked. Our slavery to sin is too strong. We need to be set free, and we need more than a man to set us free. We need God to set us free, and God came in the person of Jesus Christ to do it. If you think that, amen, that's worthy of applause. If you think that a man or a woman, humanity, if you think that a man or a woman can solve your problems, whether it's somebody else who writes a clever book or whether you think it's yourself, helping yourself, you don't understand the magnitude of the problem. You need the sun coming from the outside to set you free because he who the sun sets free is free indeed. We needed the son of God and God the son to do it. That's how big the job is. And that's why we need to understand that Jesus is God. Well, they didn't like it. They picked up stones to stone Jesus. You know, the Temple Mount was still a construction site. Herod was still doing work on the temple, or Herod's uh, uh, descendants, rather. So there were still building supplies. I'm sure they could pick up rocks, ready to stone them. What did Jesus do? Did you see it there in verse 59? It says, Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them. A couple commentators I read, I I don't think this is true, but it's kind of interesting to me. They said, Jesus made himself invisible and worked through. What, like he's got some superpower, like, you know, Like he's a ninja or something like that? No. I don't know how the miracle worked, but his time was not yet, and he just walked out from the midst of them because his time wasn't going to be for about another six months. But friends, here's what I want you to see. That in the depths of one of the heaviest theological debates that Jesus ever had with the religious leaders of his day, we get at least four very solid, practical takeaways. Let me just mention them. And we'll conclude with this. Number one, belief is the beginning. Abiding is essential. You've made the first few steps of faith. Wonderful. Keep going and especially keep going in his word. Abide in his word. Secondly, sin makes slaves, but the son sets free. Recognize that the slavery to sin is real. And maybe it's impacting your life right now, but Jesus Christ, the Son of God, can set you free. Fourth, you can change your family. Doesn't matter what destiny a person comes from. Somebody could be flat out a child of the devil, and Jesus Christ can set them free. You can change your family. That's how great the power of Jesus is. And then finally, only Jesus, God the Son, is enough for our great need. We need something more than humanity to address our need. We need God himself to come in the form of Jesus Christ, and that's exactly what he's done. So, Father, I pray that you help us to live in this and to walk in it. Oh, Jesus, we need this. We we need to abide in your word. We, We need to experience your freedom. We need, Lord, to have an encounter with the God-man, Jesus Christ. So Father, help us, fill us, speak to us, use us, guide us. We need your work in our midst, in Jesus' name, amen.